Welcome to another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast about how and why we're fucked. I'm host Alex Koch, along with my co-hosts Walker Bragman and Mark Colangelo. I want to apologize to our listeners and our Patreon subscribers for the roughly one month that we've taken off. There isn't really a reason except that the country's in, in the dumpster. Um, we've all had our busy lives to deal with and uh, you know, it just just didn't happen. Uh, so we're not going to be putting out an episode every week necessarily, but we'll still try to keep this quite regular, have great guests on, talk about important topics of the day and in history. Uh, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, we'd love your support. Uh, it would cover some costs that we've had, including some high-quality microphones and things like that. Uh, you can visit us at patreon.com slash gildedage and sign up now. Uh, and if you're not ready to financially support us, no worries, uh, but it'd be a big help if you could rate us on Apple, Google, or wherever you're getting your podcasts. Uh, I think today's episode is a really good and important conversation, so I hope you'll rate it and spread the word about the podcast in your circles on social media, etc. And you can tag us on Twitter. Uh, it's at Gilded Age Pod. So today we're talking with academic and author and uh, PhD Sara Kamali about white nationalist militancy and its uptick in recent years, months, and days. Walker, Mark, and I had a lot of questions for Dr. Kamali about how this type of militancy originates and under what conditions uh, it might take flight. So let's get into it now. Thanks for listening to Gilded Age. So today we are joined by author and holistic justice activist, Dr. Sara Kamali. Her forthcoming book, which is published by the University of California Press, is called Homegrown Hate, Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War Against the United States. And this is the first book to directly compare white nationalists and militant Islamists, uh, specifically their organizational structures, beliefs, and rationales for violence. So, uh, Dr. Kamali, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Um, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So, how are you feeling today? Good? Yes. Uh, thankfully, I try to be grateful uh, every day. Uh, it, it, you have to ask because, it, it, you know, difficult. it is a, a difficult, difficult uh, mm -hmm. moment in, in history. Mm -hmm. um, so, Part of the reason that we're doing this show or the reason that we're doing this episode is because the other day um, I became what what people call the main character of the Internet, which is mm -hmm. a term that I didn't even know what it meant until it happened to me. <laughs> I had never heard the term before it happened to me. And uh, this all involved a thread that I think you commented on, which is how I found you, mm -hmm. um, where I laid out a premise that that extremism, right-wing extremism, is fueled uh, in part by uh, economic downturns or, or, you know, prolonged periods of economic distress. And I used as my example the terrorists uh, in, in Michigan who are plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer, uh, which is one of the absolute craziest things that I have heard in a long time. Uh, even in 2020, it's still like one of the craziest. Even, 
even in 2020, yeah, it still qualifies. Uh, and one of one of the um, the things I based that on was the uh, was a house, a blighted house mm-hmm. that one of them lived in, and mm-hmm. uh, a prof a subsequent profile of the the gentleman who lived in that house came out. Turns out that he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. That he had had financial difficulties for his throughout his life. That he had addiction problem and um, hadn't graduated college, was discharged from the military, found community online among the, among the far right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so that's sort of, at least to me, that strikes me as sort of a familiar profile. And I was hoping that you could give us sort of an idea of um, who these people are who get radicalized and sort of what, What's what traits they share, where they where they differ, um, in terms of just speaking about the far right. We can get to Islamic militants later on. Um, so first, two things. One is that extremism. Uh, I would like to perhaps change that word. Um, so I don't. I'd prefer not to refer to people as extremists because that actually complicates the counterterrorism paradigm. So um, I can expand on that a little bit and then I can go back to your point. So the reason why extremism and I am a lot of different scholars uh, use different terminology and argue different things. The way that I present uh, the terminology in in the book in particular is that extremism really reifies the counterterrorism paradigm um, and specifically the the systemic racism against Muslims. And the reason for that is because if you think about what the extreme means, it means that there's a spectrum of some type of inherent militancy. And um, extremism means that there are certain quote unquote triggers that will that will make one an extremist. And so it's a bit like um, born identity, for example. I mean, if you're just conditioned a certain way, there's something inherent with you, inherent in in, in someone uh, that will make one violent. And that's not that's not the case at all, to get your point. So what I prefer is that to either use the definitions such as domestic terrorism, which specifically speaks to the uh, political far right militants. Um, also, I use the term white nationalist, which is somewhat contentious because people advocate for white power, et cetera. So for your listeners out there, when you hear the word extremism, really think about, well, how can I be more specific and what is the more appropriate term to use? Um, we can use the term white nationalist or militant, militant white nationalist in this case, uh, or the legal term, which is domestic terrorist, um, which is also somewhat problematic when you compare that to militant Islamists and that's homegrown violent extremism. So that's kind of taking the conversation separately, but, um, and also the term, and. and the uh, concomitant term radicalization also points to the same problems. Again, what does that mean to be radicalized? As if if one is exposed to a certain set of factors, then one um, becomes violent, uh, such as poverty, which is actually not necessarily the case. So to your question, uh, militancy is not a spectrum. And I wish there were a silver bullet pointing specifically to, okay, well, there's X, Y, and Z, and there's some type of algorithm or something that will, um, the, the calculus will, will point towards uh, 
what makes one violent under these circumstances. And that's not necessarily the case. What we can see, however, is that with militant white nationalists in particular, and this is over a period of time, is that economic anxiety does, while it doesn't incite violence or spark violence, it perhaps it reifies the victimhood narrative of militant white nationalists. So there is this sense of victimhood despite having white privilege. The way that, the way that um, white privilege and the way that economic anxiety, I think, intersect is that with, um, despite having the privilege of, of, of being white, the, the economic uncertainties um, that one may experience may lead one to perceive one as a victim of the circumstances. Now, what are those circumstances? If we look particularly within the case of the United States, there is um, anti-immigration sentiment, uh, people of color taking over jobs. Um, there are all these different uh, myths of, of, of the other, quote unquote. Um, and that also happens widely in Europe. And as we can see, with particularly with the rise of fascism, as many people have been academics, journalists, um, general audience people have been reading about and, and, and trying to learn about, particularly within the last four years, um, is that history has taught us time and time again that economic, uh, the experience of poverty does lead to some type of fascism, but not necessarily militant white nationalism. So I would say that the the factors of what leads to militant white nationalism are several, um, and there is a certain um, X factor that cannot be explained because we can all be exposed to the same factors and then have uh, you know react to them differently. But definitely psychological factors, and I'm not talking about mental health because that's generally used as an excuse, um, uh, because that. Blaming white militancy on on mental health, number one, um, diminishes actual mental health issues, which are very real. Right, stigmatizes it. Right, stigmatizes it, and and um, and also, uh, we're talking about a certain psychology which we can't necessarily, um, uh, again put as a calculus. But I would say that uh, certainly a sense of victimhood, and that is actually, there are grounds to think that, well, wait a second, if I am um, especially a cis heteronormative uh, white uh, man in the United States and in Europe, um, then certainly there are facets of my identity that are are being threatened. I mean, there is some validity to these claims. And I think, and I think it's really important for people who are, well, uh, dismissive of, of what's going on currently um, with, with a whole plethora of different organizations to actually, to actually try to understand where, where these people are coming from. Yeah. And could I ask um, something yeah, that, you know, Walker and I talked about, and I think was even actually Walker engaged with in some of the replies uh, on one of his tweet threads mm -hmm. was that, uh, and I think you may have just touched on it. So, so my sort of um, interpretation is that economic anxiety, you know, like these diminishing economic prospects for people. Um, I think the people who are in the majority, the perceived majority, like for, you know, obviously like white, white people and white men in particular in the United States, they, they might be, uh, sort of ripe for radicalization, um, in those times. Whereas I think minority groups are often, I mean, and, and if people were on Twitter were, I think the, the biggest criticism of Walker's tweets was that, mm -hmm. was that 
they were saying, oh, well, like people of color, a lot of people of color are very are poor in this country and they, they don't resort to this radical, radicalism, radicalism. And, and I think that's militancy, violence. Militancy. Right. right, right. I right. mean, they, they don't do that. And like, I, so, so let, tell me if this is accurate in, in your mind, if the perceived okay. majority gets, has sort of a, a, a sudden sort of economic hit. Uh, they are more ripe for exploitation by authoritarian leaders and people who prey on, uh, who, who kind of create scapegoats and victims and 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 want to want to sort of exploit these people. I think that will certainly be a factor in it, a factor of militancy, and the reason for that is because of the loss of privilege and the threat to, uh, the threat to um, cultural cultural and demographic. Uh, identity. And so it's not even that, let's see here, as we know, um, or as, as, as some of your listeners may know that by 2050, for example, not too far off, just maybe a half away, um, the demographic majority of the United States will be people of color. Now, now that is a fact that is often touted within political far right circles, militant and not online, offline, etc. Um, and that's been a long-standing idea within the political far right since the United States has be- has been the United States. White genocide, right? Right, right, exactly. White genocide, and that's actually a phrase that I use that I use quite often in the book. Um, um, and so the idea is is not that there. So people who are who are threatened feel like they're losing their demographic majority, whereas people of color will say, well, wait a second, you still hold that privilege of being white. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting, it's a positionality. I, I want to point to your listeners that there are different ways of looking at this, that's all. And actually, um, to, to Walker's uh, thread... One also one of the other arguments was like was wait a second this picture is of someone who's a property owner therefore that does not equate poverty because wealth generational wealth is built over houses and I'm, I'm interested really to hear about um, if you've changed your positions or if you've come away with with anything um, different Walker. So one of so that criticism I never felt I I've I don't feel that that's a fair criticism because. Okay. First of all, I, so I went to law school. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I'm very precise with what I mean, uh, you know, uh, when I, and I'm a writer. So when I, when I write something and I use certain terms and I don't use other terms, it's for a reason. It's not, it's not just, I, I'm not saying I don't make mistakes. I do make mistakes, but generally I, I say what I, I try to say what I mean in precise terms. Uh, and that's something that you have to do if you're looking at the law, you have to be very precise. Um, and I didn't say the word poor mm-hmm. and I didn't say the word poverty mm-hmm. be- because I, I wouldn't say that that person is living in poverty because there are, ob- and there are obviously different degrees of, of poverty. There's, you know, and especially even among like rural poverty versus urban poverty, there are different, mm-hmm. different degrees of it. Uh, I would say that that, that person who we now who we know based on their profile uh, that that came out in the paper after after this whole thing uh, that they bought that house with they they were lucky they inherited uh, they were one of twelve people to get inheritance from an estate from a family member uh, which they used to buy the buy the house before that they had financial difficulty 
for years, trouble with addiction and, and whatnot. So I, I wouldn't call that person wealthy. Um, and especially in terms of what wealth actually looks like in this country, which I think a lot of people don't have a really good conception of because there's, there's well off. And the way that our, our social ladder our socioeconomic ladder works is that every rung exerts pressure on the rung below it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that we look at, we look at it and we say, well, this person's better off than me. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're living really well. And I think that the, the reality is that in, that for most people in this country, if you can, if a cancer diagnosis or something could wipe out your savings, you're not really doing well compared to what wealth really is up at the top. Yes. But would you concede or agree with, or what is your opinion on the fact that this person, part of the Wolverine Watchmen, had generational wealth and does is a is a house owner which builds more generational wealth. So that for many people of color, for example, and even many people who are white who are experiencing poverty, that is that would be a litmus test for um, quote unquote wealth. Even though he that this particular person may be house poor, for example. What what is your take on that? I, I I understand I understand that that position. Yeah, I, I do. It's but I think that our and I think that's part of the problem with our dialogue around around class in this country is that we focus on differences that really between between a person like that and somebody who's not a homeowner and and is not building generation is not able to build generational wealth. We focus on differences like that when at the other at the other end uh-huh. um, there are people like David Koch who. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the amount of wealth that exists in the hands of just a very small number of people is so staggering. It's not even in the same. It's not even the same planet yeah. that that these people exist in, and so hence the term of your name of your podcast. I mean, Gilded Age, you know, yeah, right. speaks to that, right? I think the timeline seems to seems to implicate that. Um, this this man was radicalized before he came into the inheritance. Um, sort of suggesting that he was probably going through financial trouble when he was radicalized. Mm -hmm. But also I I do, I do think that the fact that he, he had this, this inheritance coming, uh, and then he was able to buy a home with it just actually makes him more likely to be one of these people who is radicalized because he is a person of some, even relative, but some privilege. Um, as, as you were saying, um, Dr. Kamali, um, he, he has generational wealth. So he's, he's actually, um, part of that sort of, um, that class of kind of privileged people who are, but who are, are kind of still precarious. And so he's able, he's able to sort of buy into these, the, the Trumpism and, and the white nationalist idea that, you know, his, his, his place is precarious and he might be replaced by people of color and immigrants and Jews and whoever else he's discriminating against. And this is really important because, for many white people in America, uh, and also in, I mean, anywhere around the world, I think that there's this idea, well, I'm white, and now I have to be, feel bad about being white. But that's not really the point of uh, justice activists, and that's not, not the point, certainly, of my book. And, I mean, we, we can talk about the book in, at length, but I really don't want your listeners to think, well, okay, now if I'm white, I'm, I'm to blame for this. What really I think is, is to be understood that there is a certain type of, of worldview that 
again, reifies the victimization and the it's a, it's a compilation, really. So if, if someone is looking at the world and seeing the declining um, social norms and, and uh, declining, quote unquote, cultural values of whiteness and and um, seeing uh, an influx of people who don't look like them, it's uh, honestly, it's what people of color have been experiencing around the world. It just happens to be to be in reverse now. It it, it sounds it sounds to me um, that. Obviously, psychology underpins radicalization, and there is something inherent in in where you're going as far as your status and privilege goes versus the absolute level that you're at. So, in the micro case of this um, of this domestic terrorist, um, he may have come from some money, but the the family wealth and you know his white privilege, call it, was on the decline and that matters more than the absolute level because if um if if these people didn't feel like something they had something that was being taken away from them that there some, seems to be something very stinging uh and motivating in that that is um that is specific to the white nationalist radicalization Yes, I, I would agree with that. Um, there have been many studies, and now even more so, on whether or not economics plays a role or uh, into militancy. Um, and the way that the studies are constructed, I think it's one really has to be careful about what what kind of study you're actually validating and saying. Oh, well, this actually explains uh, the the link between economics and militancy. But I do want to say as well that. The current, uh, the current landscape of what's happening to global economics um, and geopolitics, given the coronavirus, really validates the the narrative of victimhood and the sense of being threatened. Um, particularly if, uh, if if again if you're facing if you if you have privilege that you may or may not have recognized for a long time, um, and then you're being threatened. By it, especially with with the not only the popularity but also the the way that the media constructs or pits pits movements against each other. Uh, for example, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there have been a lot of um, there have been a lot of dueling rallies because of this, and so. White nationalists, for example, will use the the quote unquote woke activism movement to gain followers, which basically exemplifies the the um, the sense of of being threatened. And that's really not the case. I mean, there's room for all of us. It's just that for some reason we can't seem to to realize that this is not justice is not a zero sum game. But there's also there's also some truth to the fact that people are being victimized in today's in 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 the current um, under I guess capitalism as it is today, mm-hmm. uh, or mm-hmm. it may be inherent to the system of capitalism. Um, but there is an inherent victimization because the existence I mean I think the existence of of a billionaire class in America is inherently predatory. It's inherently yeah. damaging. But who who are you saying there? Uh, who who do you think is being victimized? I think that every rung of the social ladder going down from the very top experiences different levels of victimization mm-hmm. from the minute to the to the complete and absolute. Well, I think that capitalism 
there are certain types of capitalism that are can be infused with social justice. I don't think it has to be capitalism versus socialism by any means, but um, really, unfortunately, we do not have a compassionate capitalism uh, dynamic within this society. Well, if you take like a city like New York, uh, uh-huh. they're, they're in, in the city now, um, there are like 87,000 unoccupied apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there is a homelessness mm-hmm. crisis in the city. There's, there's a mm-hmm. pretty rampant homelessness. Um, and the Manhattan has become essentially unaffordable. I mean, this is, it's what I'm getting at is that gentrification forces people mm-hmm. into neighborhoods that are less expensive, which displaces communities that already live there even though the people that are moving there are doing so out of financial necessity, it's still hurting the people, you know, in the, in the, who are lower on the, in the on the socioeconomic ladder mm-hmm. than they are. So there is, I, I think that there is some uh, inherent victimization under this, under this system. And that doesn't, and of course that's all exacerbated along race, racial lines because we have a system that is inherently built on white supremacy. Yes, there's definitely, the, white supremacy is embedded within the, the history of the United States. So the question then becomes, and you, you pointed this out earlier, and I, I think some um, uh, people who responded to your tweets probably pointed this out earlier too, is that then why are people of color not uh, militarized and, and expressing their angst within uh, the, the, through militancy? Correct. Is it people get back to you through that vein? Yeah, that was right? that seemed to be one of the like probably the biggest criticism. Yeah. So then tying this all back together is precisely because white supremacy is embedded and imbricated within the history of the United States that militant or that white nationalism can be expressed uh, through militancy. Because if you look at well, President Trump, but also there have been um, uh, there have been expressions of militancy within previous uh, previous presidential administrations or a government. If we look at the KKK, for example, and how it was um, supported and also um, condoned by so many uh, so many politicians and so many Americans at its height in the 1920s for example so I really would like also for your listeners to understand that there are there's a historical context I mean we, we t- spoke about that before the the show uh, started is that context is so important and if we look at the context of militant white nationalism in particular we have to look at the history um, and the reifying of of white supremacy and uh, in the United States and by white supremacy, the idea that being white is somehow genetically, morally, culturally superior. This isn't, we're of course not intending to, not erasing the, the you know, militancy that has existed among uh, the, the black community, for example. There have been, there has been black militancy throughout the you know, US history and we don't want to erase that. Not at um, all. Okay, so there ha- there has been there has been militancy definitely, but then again, it's not countered in the same way. Right. It's for a different exactly. reason completely. It, I, we were talking about this yesterday, the other day, Walker. Right. You know, the black militancy mm-hmm. is fighting for their rights because they don't have the mm-hmm. rights that white people do. The other, it's the other way around with with the white white nationalists. Well, I think 
you're 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 kind of treading onto ideology there. So, um, Dr. Kamal, I'd be interested right. in your thoughts on on white nationalism as an ideology. Um, uh, compare it to uh, you know the ideology of um, underpinning militant Islam, which is obviously a religion. Does does um, white nationalism? How does that stack up um, as far as a, a set of beliefs and how motivating they are? And do, I feel like it's almost a religion. Excellent. Seems like you've previewed my book. Yeah, we want to hear about um, it for sure. All right. <laughs> yeah. So just to touch upon what uh, Walker was saying earlier about black uh, black militancy, that's the reason why I actually compare uh, militant white nationalism and white nationalism, which okay, white, the expression of white nationalism, which may or may not be militant, to militant Islamism, because within the United States um, and tr transnationally, there have been um, different expressions of, of, um, of terrorism. Um, so with regards to white nationalism as an ideology, that's very much true. There are different strands. So I speak, uh, well, I write in the book of the different strands of white nationalism, and I break it down essentially and um, well, I guess it's a bit of Cliff Notes version, uh, but there are different strands. So there's a the conspiratorial anti-government sentiment. Uh, we can see that with the patriots, so-called patriot movement, which is very broad in, in the uh, militias. That's not necessarily racist. Then we have the religious adherence. And these kind of all overlap as well. So this is not cut and dried um, uh, demarcated views, but these are the general strands. The second one is the religious adherence. So if we look at the KKK and the neo-Nazi groups, um, they definitely have religion as a motivating factor. And I'll get back to that in, in just one minute. So put a little asterisk there with the religious adherence. Then you have the um, combination of anti-government and religious. And when we speak about anti-government, we're not talking about Trump haters. We're actually talking about the federal government as an institution that should not be um, regulating law. It's very much localized government, um, the way that we would, the, the, um, the, the, the founding fathers were Christian or um, very much wanted um, the people to run the government, essentially white people, government for white people by white people. And would that be like the Cliven, the Bundy ranch people? Um, yes. So that is the uh, militant uh, Mormonism, or militant Latter-day Saints, very much so. Um, and the constitutional sheriffs are also, you also have the single issue anti-abortionists, which were um, on the landscape of terrorism in the 1990s, for example. And then you have the neither anti-government nor religious. And so, well, wait a second, what is that? But that's more of the diffuse movements like Proud Boys. So going back, Alex, to your specific point about ideology, white nationalists definitely do have an ideology and they're and the 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 foundation to all of these different strands is the united states is a nation for white people and by white people not necessarily christian um but maybe perhaps christianist but definitely uh white and the founding fathers um whether one specifically believes in the founding fathers and the divinity of the constitution, or whether one believes in Imago Dei and the idea of Jesus being white. There are also many different um, 
racist religions, essentially, um, that I break down the breakdown in the book that reify this, that are not necessarily mainstream orthodox beliefs, but definitely adhere to and that support the idea of the United States being a nation exclusively for white people and by white people. Uh, think, uh, religions such as Christian identity, which is very popular in the 1980s. There's something called creativity, a religion um, called creativity. Um, um, and also there's this concept of the 14 words that also underpins these different strands of white nationalism. And even though, as I, again, just, I mean, everything, you know, we're talking about white nationalism, which is what I wrote about. But um, even though the phrase, the 14 words really didn't come about until the 1980s with, with David Lane, who was a very prominent um, uh, figurehead and, and revered in many instances as a martyr, um, the, the concept of the 14 words um, has been part and parcel of white nationalism throughout um, throughout um, its, its its history as an ideology. Well, since since the Nazis, right? I mean, doesn't that come from uh, a Nazi phrase? Um, well, the con the concept of blood and soil definitely does that. That fits into that, but also the just the idea of whiteness uh, future for white children. That that even I would mm. say precedes. Okay. Well, right, right. Well, and so I wanted to yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit about. Um, labeling the Michigan militia people, the 13 men who were arrested, I guess they call mm -hmm. themselves Wolverine Watchmen. Wolverine, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, labeling them as explicitly white nationalists. Um, I don't doubt that mm -hmm. they might be, or some of them might be. I know, I mean, certainly, uh, I, I think the, the guy in the picture that you tweeted out, Walker, had a Confederate flag in, in, in the upper Midwest. I mean, you know, the, that, that's clearly an indication of some white supremacist thinking. But in terms of, you know, I, my understanding of the white power movement, um, is that it, it certainly uh, intersects a lot and overlaps a lot with white nationalism, but it's not necessarily, like every militia you see isn't necessarily an explicitly, like they don't necessarily think that they should live in a country of only white people, which is what white nationalism is, but they certainly believe that white people are superior. Um, and I feel like there's, there's a lot of gray area in the media and um, on Twitter and things with people who don't really quite understand the, the, the differences between these various terms. And I wonder if you could kind of shed a little light onto, onto that. And the reason why it's so confusing and confounding is because, for example, as we've illustrated or, or demonstrated ourselves within this conversation is we've been also talking about the same thing, but then putting different labels on it. And these labels are also um, have not been consistently applied uh, by by the media on any part of the political spectrum. Um, so it is right to be confused. The other confusing part, which is, again, simply to your point, is that different people, different scholars will, will speak about these things differently. So the reason that I maintain and adhere to white nationalism is because I actually do believe that these uh, uh, people want uh, the United States to be a nation by white people and for white people. Um, whereas other scholars will simply call it a white power movement, but I think that also diminishes the black power movement and doesn't really speak to the full scope of the aim and what Alex was saying, the ideology of, of white nationalists. And of course, people are, people are um, uh, allowed to disagree with my opinion and push back, um, but that's, that's the stance that I maintain. Why do you think that, why do you think that, um, 
in this moment right now, it's we're seeing such a surge um, in, in, with these groups of, mm. the, of militant activity among, among these groups. Mm. I think it's because it's normalized for, for a variety of factors, actually. One is that it's normalized from the top down. And um, I think that the way that the leadership and not only uh, President Trump, but but um, different political leaders have spoken about um, whiteness um, is is not directly condemned. Um, and also that the way that white um that militancy, white nationalist militancy is dealt with in a counterterrorism paradigm has not been countered effectively. Um, and that's something else that we can talk about that's also implicated within, within systemic racism. For example, the way that militant Islamism is dealt with as a counter from the counterterrorism paradigm versus militant white nationalism is completely different. And so um, we're not seeing a, a, a pushback on that. And then also um, I think to to uh, Mark's point earlier too, is that there's such a confusion about terms and labels that if we don't know what to call something, then how can we how can we effectively counter it? So I think there are a lot of different factors as to the rise. Also, what I would also um, like everybody to, to know is that again, it's all about context and that despite the uh, seeming rise of white militant white nationalism, and yes, of course, uh, different organizations who are tracking this um, at universities and also uh, also elsewhere, different nonprofit profit groups will um, say, "Oh, well, this is the, the, the unprecedented rise in militant militant white nationalist groups, or however they choose to label them and define them." But again, if we look at the Obama presidency, the beginning of his first term, that that he um, let's see here, his first first administration um, or his election to president of the United States really sparked a, a, a great rise in, in these types of groups, as well as we've seen that throughout the history of the United States. I mean, the KKK, again, 1920s America was um, very much part and parcel of American political life at all different levels. I mean, we also saw a rise in a surge in militia militancy mm -hmm. uh, in the '90s, in the early '90s as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And these all, incidentally, also co coincide with major or, or minor or less minor in context of what we are currently going through. But they also coincide with economic uh, recession. In the '90s, you um, think? In the early '90s, there was an economic recession following the Reagan administration. And in the Department of Homeland Security, in a report mm -hmm. um, back in 2009. The Daryl Johnson and nine, report? Uh, I don't want to commit one way or another to that. But there was a report that was released by the, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, a declassified report that said that the election of America's first black president, as well as a prolonged economic recession like we saw in the 90s, would, would, be, uh, would prove fertile recruiting ground for, for these groups and could result in confrontations between these groups and the government as we have seen in the past. Um, and so it, you know, the, the, the point that, that I, that I was trying to get at with the, with the thread was not to be a fully encompassed conversation or discussion about why these groups exist the way that they do or why they're, why they're surging, just that our, our discussion around them does seem to sort of blot out that aspect of it, that we are sort of 
allergic to the discussion of 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 economic uh, factors. Not not even not even to say that those factors are that the, those factors have primacy, but just that they exist uh, in the in in terms of media discussion about these these people. There is a there is an urge, I think, um, a desire to sort of erase that because for whatever reason. Well, and I and also just just adding to that quickly, I think some some of what's underlying Walker's frustration about some of the responses that he's getting is that even even if um even this guy in the Michigan in the Wolverines had it uh relatively well off even if he had white white privilege and even if he wasn't poor relative to um other mm-hmm. other groups mm-hmm. in this country and other demographics mm-hmm. we can we can all be doing a lot better with the right policies put in place and it's it's um it's still not acceptable for large swaths of the country to be in decline economically and in other facets. I think that's part of the reason that we don't, that, that media won't have that, that people in media won't have that conversation or, or generally like you won't have that conversation among certain Democrat in democratic circles, because there is not, there is a desire to not implement those policies or to sort of, um, lionize the legacy, the economic legacy of the Obama recovery, and that recovery, ninety-five percent of the gains went to the top one percent, and then and un, and job and and labor participation never recovered. So, I mean that that's just I don't know. That's that's sort of where I'm where I'm coming from with with this. Basically, if if we had a much better wealth distribution if many more people were not either in economically precarious positions or straight up poor um do you think that there would be as much um i guess growth in the white nationalist movement as much potentially exploitable people that trump and his minions can uh rally and encourage to to create these um you know these militias and everything else or do you think that's a factor well, Trump supporters, Trump supporters are actually are rather economically well off now. Now, this is pre pre coronavirus economic uh, um, anxiety and un, I don't want to say unprecedented, but but the tumult of of the the current economic tumult and crises. Um, are, that's studies, are, of course, have yet to have yet to um, parse parse the the. Uh, the reasons, et cetera, and the different factors that are going into militancy um, given the current context. Um, but uh, Trump supporters, while they, while many of them are not college educated, they're actually um, uh, e- were economically well off. Yeah, I think the median voter in 2016 for Trump was mm-hmm. slightly wealthier than the Clinton voter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the, yeah, mm-hmm. that that's true. But I don't think mm-hmm. that discounts the idea that there are. Yeah, there are pretty significant swaths of people who are Trump supporters who are pretty in precarious, precarious. positions. Um, this yes. is not to excuse anything that they do at all. I mean, uh, yeah, of course. But I'm just curious, like, if there were fewer mm-hmm. of them who were in an economically precarious position, would Trump not be so effective at at kind of, um, I guess, you know, for exploiting their racism or whatever and, and making it more of an issue for them? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well... 
I, 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 um, to my earlier point, I certainly do think that economic anxiety magnifies any type of other threat, any type of sense of victimhood. So I, I think Walker, I think you said that earlier too, is that, uh, economic anxiety in and of itself is also a type of victimhood. But, but I would, I would like to say too, is that, um, for example, if we take the deadliest uh, act of terrorism perpetrated by an American to date on American soil, that was Timothy McVeigh. And his issue had to do a lot with gun rights, as well as um, potentially some mix of Christian identity, which is which is a, one of the racist religions I was talking to you earlier about. Um, but as far as economic, I, well, you know what, as far as economics goes, that how much of a proportion it plays into actual militancy, um, I don't think we can actually know. But it certainly does play a role, and I do agree with Walker that definitely, when it comes to um, w the media, we need to we need to talk about that more. And for instance, I mean, way back when, uh, with the. Uh, John Edwards presidential campaign. I mean, he was one of the last politicians actually at that level to speak about poverty. And that's a very unsexy topic as far as the media is concerned. So I think that now given the, how the current economic landscape is, is, is um, changed and altered so drastically because of the coronavirus pandemic, I really do hope that it becomes more of a conversation and the poverty stigma goes away for, for many different reasons, not just militancy. It scares the hell out of me because I, I grew up, you know, in a Jewish and learning that about, about the rise of, of Hitler and how, mm. how the treaty of Versailles and the great depression were, were significant factors in his appeal to Germans loss of status, loss of global status. And also, sense that that they were you know on the decline um and it, we're never it, it seems that 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 you know members of the tribe were never were never uh, very far from from the minds of these white nationalists where there might they, they might be focused on immigration now but, but we're always we're always uh we're always there oh, yeah. with q you know. especially i know i dr kamali mm -hmm. I, yeah <laughs> i read your piece today uh, about q and it was it was kind of an all-encompassing piece but it included a lot about mm -hmm. q and the kkk and stuff and like that a lot of what you were writing about was 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 the blood libel and this kind of recurring anti-semitic theme that has come up with q as well mm -hmm. and i really do want to point out that racism is racism regardless of economic uh, re regardless of economic status. And in order for people to be in power, kind of like what you were talking about socioeconomically, Walker, is that in order for people to be at the top rung, they're not at the bottom rung. And so this idea of a compassionate um, capitalism is something that many religions of um, and different um, moral systems do push because of the the purpose and the goal of equity and different types of equity. Because of course, if you have economic equity and then you will have um, gender identity equity, for example. And so there will be a lot of people. Um, and that's something I talk about within the book and the and specifically in the conclusion about holistic justice and, and what that means. That's something 
that's a concept basically I put forward not only to combat counterterrorism, but to also combat the the ideologies of vitriol and of difference that um, that have gotten us to this point. And and definitely economics needs to be taken into that calculus. How I was going to ask, how do you what what do you do to sort of walk people back from the edge? I mean. Uh, we we mentioned um, you mentioned Timothy McVeigh earlier, mm-hmm. and I, I feel that it is it is you know he he was a, a vet he was a decorated um, combat veteran, and coming back we do see uh, the veterans are targeted by these by these groups um, for uh, whatever reason maybe it's a sense of isolation coming back and f- having a difficult time reintegrating into society. Uh, That's Catherine Ballou's book, uh, "Bring the War Home," about that phenomenon. Right, and and so so, what could we do to sort of walk the every walk the country back from the edge, um, it, it, particularly white people who feel threatened by, <laughs> you know, without 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 um, without giving into their their demands to hurt other people based on race and yeah <laughs> no it's fine it, read a conclusion but but i will give you a preview but I, I i that's something i've been thinking deeply about for many years um and and have written extensively about uh within the book homegrown hate but i i want to pause for just a second and touch upon the fact that you you mentioned um veterans and, and and militancy um and that's something that has been long discussed talking about fbi reports that has also been discussed in fbi report many years ago and the term that they used was ghost skins and the reason for that is because people who have military uh experience in the military and of course not everybody um, and in law enforcement also have this particular experience that can then be brought to bear within different types of um, white nationalist groups in particular and so that's also something that um, I, I talk at length about and something that needs to be recognized particularly as we have seen with recent protests and how how there have been um, many different types of 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 militias and also different types of groups um, um, acting as, as law enforcement for these uh, militant white nationalists. So I just want to make sure that that, that gets, I mean, that's, that's a whole other conversation. Um, now, as far as- There's also the infiltration of these groups into law enforcement, which is presents it to, I guess, a well, whole nother- I, I wouldn't say the uh, infiltration of militant white nationalists, you mean within law enforcement? Yes. Yeah. So there's definitely a recruiting aspect, and that's something that I call ghosts. I use the same terminology, but ghost skins. Same. You're definitely right. Okay. Right. And I do want to point out that that, that is very small, small percentage, small but potent. Um, and um, there have been many instances within different branches of the military, the U.S. military, um, that that has seen um, potentially deadly results because of because of this um, recruitment. That's terrifying. I inter I interrupt I interrupted you. You were making a, a another point. So. No, I mean we could we could talk about what to do now, basically. So what, what's the what's the response? And well, it really depends on um, who the audience is. So would you like would you like to pick the audience, or shall I just put up a scenario? Well, let's say so. Our audience is probably left of center, 
Twitterati, mm-hmm. I guess, for now. But we don't all we don't want to just appeal to those types of people. So right, um, right. You know, whatever you think is your most the most honest and and broadly applicable example. <laughs> yeah, and divisive identity politics. I wish that was a broadly. There, I wish there was broadly applicable anything. Um, Everybody seems to like to hunker down in their groups. What I what I would say is that for for people who are listening and who I identify as white, or who who recognize that they have white privilege, um, then uh, use it. And by use it means I mean that recognize that it's not only the militant white nationalists that need to be held to account. It's also the quote unquote white liberal. And I also talk about that in the conclusion. And the reason I'm talking about that is because, uh, I mean, I'm mentioning the book is just because we'll provide a whole contextual overview to kind of snippets of ideas that that we're discussing today. But um, there's a concept of white liberal hypocrisy. And I think that's really important for, for white people in particular to be very reflective about their role in, in, um, um, in being complicit in supporting the historical embeddedness of white supremacy within the United States. And what that means is that these factors that are coming into play that are allowing militancy, white uh, militant white nationalism to happen um, also need to be pushed back by the people who can push back, um, who are uh, white, "Quote unquote liberals," and I think the idea too is something something that I'm I'm very concerned with is that it shouldn't be a white liberals demonizing the the white right, for example, but really understanding okay, so if this is how I identify on the political spectrum or how I choose to identify, then what what role am I playing in supporting the the continuation of of white nationalism, white supremacy? How how can I change the dialogue? Um, how can I reach out to different groups of color to support them? How can I reach out to different uh, white um, white groups and support them and understand their points of view. And I think really this uh, the point the underlying the underlying um, premise of how to counter all of this, which I talk about through my concept of holistic justice, which is basically empathy and not the empathy that causes one pain, but the empathy that checks one's own biases and perspectives and and allows one to listen truly to another person without judgment. And that is incredibly hard to do. And, um, and, but I, but I think it's so incredibly important. We need to listen to each other and understand where the other person is coming from and why. I could not possibly agree with that more. (laughs) (laughs) It's, and, and, and that's sort of, you know, that's how I approach uh, I mean, the stories that I cover and just politics generally is is uh, from a place of, of humanism where right. recognizing sort of a, a common shared humanity with people, even if even people that I abhor and who whose beliefs I think who scared the hell out of me, um, recognizing that when 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 people fail uh, or or fall or however, whatever you want to put it, um, whatever term you want to use. Choose a different path than your own. Choosing a path that is, that is destructive, choosing a destructive path that there's always, that there's the individual decision, but the, and, and failure, but there is also a societal failure that contributes to it. And 
we all sort of bear responsibility in in those broader failures um, and recognizing that how, how we do how we contribute to those I think is important and by we you mean uh, white men or who are you talking about white white men uh, Yes, especially well, especially white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, given today, I think it's impossible to to deny. But but white people generally, yeah. Um, as uh, and 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 as, as just as a country that allows for uh, such grave inequality and injustice to persist, mm-hmm. uh, there there is I think an inherent responsibility that everybody has. Um, I think people, people, especially particularly with uh, with melanin privilege, as I call it, because um, it, it's not it's not to blame anyone, and I think that's really important not to feel blame or fingers pointing, but really, actually, it should be more empowering. As okay, well, I actually have a lot of tools at my disposal that other people don't, and how can I exercise these tools in order to um, strive towards justice? So it's not a burden and it's not a blame. It's it's more of of um, with great power comes great responsibility. And Superman is uh, Super Spider Man is not not the first person to to say that. Right. Well, yeah. well, people with people with privilege generally is it's important. I think it's incumbent yeah. on everybody to use what privilege they have. Right. Uh, you know, and that's that is that is it's it's white privilege. Uh, it's economic privilege. It's, uh, yeah, I was going to say there's there's mm-hmm, economic mm-hmm, privilege, mm-hmm. Um, but but then I I stopped myself because I don't love the idea of of private charity being our our go to answer. I don't think that that's going to solve much much of our much of the problems that we face. Well, that's actually why I mean that's why I saying what our tools are at one's disposal and something that I I speak regularly about in classrooms in particular um, is focus on local elections. And I've been, now I think it's, it's the um, cool and, you know, more of a mainstream thing to say, but it's not just about focusing on uh, every four years, but really how do you affect change within your local community? Um, And I think that's really hard to do. Well, particularly now given the, given the pandemic, but also simply because we've chosen or simply because it seems like there's such a, um, a deluge of negative news that it's much easier to just tune people out or not deal with it or or want to find that safety in ignorance. But ignorance is is there's really no such thing because ultimately everything is going to affect affect oneself. So it's better to participate and act and and um, and work towards achieving equity than 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 not because what other alternative do you have? You know, it's, it, I was watching a, a discussion, I don't know if you saw it, but the discussion between uh, Brianna Joy Gray, uh, Virgil Texas, and Noam Chomsky. I did. Um, and they were talking about, about voting and, and, and how to, to uh, I guess, move the country in a more positive direction. And, mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. and Chomsky was saying, you have, to, you have to vote, like this election is super important, you have to vote, you have to vote. And I think uh, Brianna was, was uh, raising an interesting point is that um, voting hasn't delivered for so many people and so many people feel disengaged. Uh, there was an article in um, Current Affairs by Malika Jabali called The Color of Economic Anxiety, Right. which if anybody hasn't read that, who's listening to this, I highly recommend you read it. It is probably the best article to come out that year uh, about how working class black voters in mm-hmm. the Midwest 
mm-hmm. felt completely disengaged in mm-hmm. 2016 by their options and and mm-hmm. didn't and didn't uh, turn out. And I, I and I I don't uh, okay. So there's actually a series of articles that I've just started um, publishing on my website. Um, it's called Activating Justice. And honestly, this is this is actually not a plug, but this is just to explain that I, I actually agree with that here. point. You're our, you're our guest. Yeah, please <laughs> oh, plug okay. away. Well, <laughs> okay, so so I've had this uh, idea for as long as I can remember, and. Um, uh, and I think a lot of different outlets or mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream news organizations are doing something of now a similar vein, but really is looking at how uh, uh, everyday heroes are, are advancing justice within their own capacities. This is not necessarily to spend money, but, um, and again, of course, there are, we could have a whole different discussion on where does aid come from and, you know, privatized versus versus public health, public help, um, et cetera. But, in this series of articles, I really focus on people enacting change in their own community simply because I think that's where change is going to start. And not necessarily through the voting booth, but particularly when it comes to militant white nationalism um, and also militant Islamism, actually, in that regard, because of the prevalence of Islamophobia and how much it is taken for granted uh, so many years after 9-11, is that we really need to focus on what color is our world? Uh, what, uh, who are our friends? What media are we watching? What are we consuming? How are we inhabiting the world? I mean, who do we speak to on a day-to-day basis? This is not that Jimmy Kimmel, um, you know, interviews about how many black friends are on your phone. That's or the token black friend. That's not, that's not the case, but really how many other perspectives are we digesting uh, from a day-to-day perspective? And I really do believe that represents Representation in that case matters. And I think that activism and advancing justice happens uh, outside of the voting booth. And as we can see, there are many, many flaws um, within our, within our uh, a, a democracy, but that doesn't mean that its ideals cannot be, cannot be realized. Do you think that if we reintegrate, took active steps to reintegrate um, schools in this country, we, we might have uh, a better or less, um, we might ease the divide over time. Okay. By reintegrate schools, you mean? I'm talking about busing mm-hmm. because schools today are, are more uh, segregated than they have been. Oh since. man. Okay. So talk about economic anxiety. <laughs> So your zip code, one zip code determines one's trajectory and one's access. And then of course there's all, so that's the, that's actually the concept of holistic justice, which I pose because you can't just look at uh, melanin justice, for example. And the reason I don't use racial justice is because I really try to avoid the term race in the book, other than when it speaks about from the perspective of uh, white nationalists, because we're one race, there's no races. I don't, Uh, that's scientifically proven for those of you who believe in science. But um, in terms of, in (laughs) in terms of reintegrating schools, I think it's going to have to be a whole slew of things. And I think that is also why um, dealing with uh, terrorism, for example, is so complicated because it's not just about one issue, one silver bullet, one way of looking at things. You, in order for, in order for there to be any kind of equity has to come from gender equity. You have to address the gender pay gap. You have to address childcare. You have to address um, uh, access to, uh, to um, the healthcare, health facilities. You have to have infrastructure in these towns, for example. Um, you have to have access to jobs. Um, so it's very complicated, and I think that's also why 
given the 24 hour news cycle and also sound soundbite world um, that it's very difficult to engage people's attention long enough in order to deal with these things. So I think that in order to actually even be able to uh, reintegrate or um, schools, quote unquote, reintegrate schools, I think that there would have to be a whole myriad of factors um, uh, from environmental justice to gender justice to um, to um, melanin justice that would that would have to be that would have to be addressed as with everything else. Well, it's 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 uh, that is something we haven't spent a lot of time on during this discussion is the yeah. gender aspect of it because mm. it always does seem to be men who are carrying out these acts and and who are getting. Uh, and I think that's Mark. You sent me a post, the, a Facebook post the other day that said that was that started out with like people need to talk about the the positives of fascism. It gives people a sense of purpose and. Well, it was a negative post about fascism, but it said you have to recognize. No, that but it, it would be it would be helpful. It would be helpful to um, to understand what appeal what why fascism appeals to people mm -hmm. and under mm -hmm. what conditions mm -hmm. it does. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, yeah, long and short of it is, you know, people people who um, feel that things have ha have been taken away from them that they're on the decline, and this is especially prevalent um, in men uh, relative to. Um, the economic factors, uh, they can't provide for their families anymore. It gives them a, a sense um, of masculinity, there's, there's this, renewed masculinity. Yeah. And and then the fascism kind of supplants that. And the changing, shifting uh, gender identity. norms, the shifting gender roles, for example. I mean, the same factors that are uh, uh, playing, playing different roles or the different facets um, that are involved with militant white nationalism, white white yeah. white grievance about losing their status as right. a, as a privileged race, yeah. And also, I mean, if you look at a, a lot of the school shooters and the mass shooters, uh, a lot of them tend to have uh, documented histories of battery, abusing women, things like that. Yes. There's so misogyny is a yes, very much a lot of correlation within misogyny in particular, and that's something I also discuss. And the reason. Um, and I also discuss the the the, the, um, the focus on on uh, people who identify as men in particular um, within within homegrown hate. And that that is not to say though that women have not played a role uh, within uh, militancy, either within militant Islamism or within militant white nationalism. There is a case study of a uh, a woman militant white uh, militant Islamist woman that I bring up in the book. But also there have there has been a lot of scholarship on the role of women within the KKK, for example. Um, so that is very interesting, and that's something that I cite. So that you're definitely right on that point. But looking at those factors, um, well, there, there's a lot of liter excellent literature on that. Well, I can't wait to get your book. Yeah, speaking of <laughs> speaking of literature, um, yeah, it's uh, literature. so your book is is homegrown hate: why white nationalists and militant Islamists are waging war against the United States. Um, University of California Press coming out in April of 2021. Is that right? Yes. So it seems like a lot of time, but um, well. Uh, Time, it'll time go flies. Quickly. Yeah, it'll go by quick. And also, also, you know, I'm sure we can perhaps you know, speak about the about the other side uh, at some point. That would oh, be great. Oh yeah, we should do another I episode. I was I was going to ask. Yeah. I wanted to before bef uh, just just to ask you because I, I read an article. There was an article in June, I think, of 2016. Yeah. 
about ISIS recruiting um, by doing something very, very simple, which was offering people in, mm. in a region that has been decimated, colonized and, and bombed and blown to hell, uh, financial, some kind of financial stability. Mm-hmm. And then it's not just radicals that they are, uh, or not, not just, um, yeah. Not People just who are prone to militant militancy for other reasons. Yes. That it's, mm-hmm. that it's people mm-hmm. who, who just need a, a, mm-hmm. a job. And that is something that I think is like mercenaries. Is very scary. Right. And that's actually having, mm, sorry, Walker. Yeah. I was going to say having, no, it's okay. I was just gonna say having covered, having covered, uh, Yemen, it, it's very scary because the the I'm I am so convinced that the the next uh, that the world will will reap what it has sowed with the, the genocide that is occurring in Yen, in Yemen and and there's um, I don't know it's 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 just a, a tragic uh, I don't want to say tragic actually because tragedy implies that there's some fatal flaw that's responsible I'm, I'm not going to say tragedy I, I will say that it is a an intentional uh, horrific monstrosity occurring in real time. Mm-hmm. And it has uh, been for a long time as well. It has been for a long time. Even before, even before the genocide started, it was the poorest uh, right. country in the, in, in the region. The, in the region. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, but, but you talk about um, the sort of radicalization of, of uh, Islam and can, can you give us some of the, um, factors, factors that play that contribute to that mm-hmm. as they differ from white nationalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually, the the again the the there's a parallel in terms of a sense of victimhood, um, and I and actually that sense of victimhood kind of goes along with what you were saying uh, in terms of the monstrosity of wars, particularly with um, uh, propagandizing uh, U.S.-led wars and and also using these um, centuries-old tropes of colonialism, but also the Crusades, for example, and how um, the quote-unquote West, which is a term I don't like to use, but militant Islamists very much use that um, as a Crusader-Zionist alliance, for example, that is still happening today. And there are a lot of thinkers and a lot of ideologues whose work um, has been um decontextualized and and um misapplied and there's also been a lot of thinkers and ideologues whose work is very much um written specifically for the the militant islamist audience and to your point about about economic anxiety and type of this this mercenary type of terrorism within militant islamism i definitely um there are petrodollars, for example, and I do talk about that as well in the book. Uh, petrodollars from Saudi Arabia, for example, that have that have um, uh, played a large role in funding a lot of different types of um, not a lot of different types of institutions, but many uh, religious schools called madaris or this singular madrasa but basically when people don't necessarily have a place to our children don't have a place to live or 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 uh, access to steady meals then there will often find that within places of religious learning and unfortunately um that becomes a place to exploit that type of economic vulnerability now, now that's not 
the only that's not that's not a a primary factor but that's definitely economic anxiety again definitely does play a role but it's overall this overall sense of disenfranchisement and this overall sense of victimhood which very much parallels militant white nationalists because the, a study that i looked at said that there doesn't seem to be much of an economic link between uh islamic radicalization and uh or an economic link to islamic rad- radicalization um and I wanted to ask what role uh, U.S. militarism or, for, or, or Western militarism in the region sort of plays into, uh, in, in the Middle East and North Africa plays uh, in, in that. A whole host, a huge problem. So uh, it's interesting because the studies that I've cited within within homegrown hate actually, and, and I speak specifically about economic anxiety. And while um, economic anxiety is actually more of a factor, not a not a huge factor, but more of a factor. Uh, with regards to militant white nationalism than it is with militant Islamism, which one wouldn't necessarily think that to be the case looking at the surface and the devastation that you were speaking about. Um, and of course, with the coronavirus context, I'm not sure, you know, nobody knows how that's going to be change if, if it does at all. Um, but in terms of, in terms of the, um, uh, different factors with, oh, in terms of the U.S.-led wars within uh, Muslim-majority nations, that definitely plays a role, um, and that is arguably the, the the preeminent role that actually reifies again the sense of victimhood and the sense of the um, crusaders versus us. And so, if anything, the 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 uh, American, so the American citizens. Um, whom I discuss in the book, um, they actually are, through their own writings, have expressed more of a sympathy and more of an alliance with the victims of American-led wars than they do with with uh, American citizens within their own country. And there's a whole host of reasons, and there's a lot of um, different theological underpinnings. And again, speaking to um, uh, to to Marx. Uh, question earlier about ideology, there's definitely a much more, um, um, the concepts of Islam specifically as a religion are are um, applied and misapplied, I should say misapplied um, to to exploit these that sense of that sense of victimhood. Whereas with militant white nationalism, not only are there many religions, but there are also um, concepts of the fourteen words that act like a religion that are that are not a religion that that fuel um, the sense of victimhood. So it's, it is. Ideologically speaking, there are parallels, and of course, there are differences in how and how uh, theologies and values are are wielded to justify militancy. Dr. Kamali, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I I feel like we've kept you way longer than we originally intended, but uh, it has been fascinating, and I do hope that you will join us again. Um, to, and can't wait to to get your book. Sincerely, it's been it's been a delight, and um, I appreciate you um, all taking the time out and the uh, mental mental time out too, because I know it, I know it's a lot of mental work, and it's somewhat harder to focus these days than than, than others. So I appreciate your um, your uh, thoughtful questions. Oh yeah, we're we're grateful for your time. Thanks so much for coming in yeah every it's always hell week in journalism so you know (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, and I do hope I do hope uh, next time we we meet, it's under um, um, better circumstances for for the world. It's possible it'll be next year. So, oh, please, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, please. cross the fingers. Yes. Oh. <laughs> every night, every night before. Yep. <laughs> yes. Editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. Published by Opt Out News. <laughs>